Vintage Church exists to inspire people to live and love like Jesus. It's why we do everything we do. This standard for the church was set by Jesus himself when he passed the baton to his first followers. Jesus modeled what the Father desired for his people, and it is this example that we aim to reflect. We take this time every year to examine his life, to be reminded of what it really means to live and love like Jesus. This is Live Love 2019. Isn't it good to be in the presence of the Holy Spirit, man? You know you're never not, right? Like I used to I hear preachers say, I'm in the good that the Spirit showed up. Like he was already there. What is it about Monday night, man? One year ago, today. For one year, we've been doing Monday nights for one year tonight. And y'all keep coming, so we'll keep doing it. Ah, man. So, September the 13th, 2009, was the very first Sunday that we worshipped in Randleman. That Sunday was the very first Sunday we worshipped in this town. We worshipped in the auditorium at Randleman High School, September the 13th, 2009. That Sunday was also the first time we ever launched an iteration of a series that we call Live Love that has now become something that we do every year. Every year we take time to pause and revisit our why, to refocus on on why we are here. And it's hard to believe that we stand here now at version 10. We met, see y'all don't understand. 10 years, God has allowed us to revisit this mission. Y'all don't realize how big of a miracle that is. Y'all don't realize how big of a miracle it is that I haven't messed it up yet. (laughs) Ten years we have done this. And just as we've moved toward this tenth iteration of this series, I've been thinking about that first Sunday, that September 13th, 2009. And what y'all don't know is the amount of anxiety that I felt that first Sunday. Because if I'm really honest, I really believe that that version of live love would not only be the first, it would be the last. Not the last version of live love, but the last series that I would ever preach at Venice Church. Because see, a week earlier, September the 6th, 2009, was the last time Vintage Church worshipped at Southern Guilford Middle School. And maybe you didn't know that about our story. But from September of 2008 to September of 2009, this church worshiped at Southern Guilford Middle School. And when September of 2009 rolled around, we had been trying to do this for over two years now. My wife, Ashley, and I moved up here in the summer of 2007 and began this journey to plant Vintage Church in Greensboro, North Carolina. And from September uh, From the summer of 07 until September of 08, my leadership was so good, I built this church to 12 people. One person for every month that we had been up here. Woo! And so September 2008 rolled around and and that handful of people just decided, we're going to start worshiping. We're going to start coming together on Sunday mornings and just doing whatever God calls us to do. And y'all, we had no money. Like, we had nothing. 
We had to borrow a sound system from another guy's uncle's bluegrass band. And like, that's what we used for worship. We, we used to go around the building just stealing ficus trees wherever we could find them to make it look like there was something on the stage. And God was working. Some cool things were happening. People were coming to Jesus. We'd actually even baptized a few people. And 12 turned into about 20, and 20 turned into about 30. And we decided to, hey, let's, let's officially kind of launch this thing. So in February of 2009 at Southern Guilford Middle School, we, we officially launched as a church. And that Sunday, we had like 85 people. And I preached so good, the next Sunday, we had 52. <laughs> and for the next few months, we just kind of somehow got by. And we come to 2006, I mean, excuse me, September 6, 2009. And we were decided we were moving our church to Randleman, which was a difficult decision. See, God called me to plant a church in Greensboro, an urban church, a city church, Windover, Battleground, in the middle of the city. I lived in the country and kind of been in smaller towns my whole life. I wanted to go big time. And Casey Harris, who was our youth pastor at the time, he and Rebecca, still part of our church, was doing youth ministry, and, and youth ministry was doing some really cool things. And at that time, Casey and Rebecca were both teaching at Randleman High School. And through a series of events, Casey comes to me one day, and he says, hey, man, I think maybe God wants our church to move to Randleman. And I said, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. We, matter of fact, I said, we will never move this church to Randleman. Can I give you a piece of advice? Be careful what you tell God you will never do. God doesn't have an evil laugh because he's God. He has a holy laugh. And you say, I'll never, and God in heaven says, <laughs> let me show you, son. And God had made it abundantly clear that Randleman was where he was calling us. So I got over myself and I swallowed my pride. Now listen to the Lord. But what made September 13th, 2009, our first Sunday in Random and so anxious, was a conversation I had the week before. See, as we were tearing down for the last time at Southern Guilford Middle School in the midst of that teardown, which wasn't a lot because we didn't have anything, Jenny Austin, who was our finance pastor, pulled me aside and said, Matt, I just have to tell you, we have no money. Excuse me? Like, how bad is it? We have no money. Like, we make broke look broke. Like, we have no money. And see, like, like when we started this church, like, we literally, we, we, we didn't have really much support. And, 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 and actually, I raised my salary for the first three years of the existence of this church. Like, I, I wanted to, like, whoever would buy into this thing and, and believe that God was calling us to something, I wanted to make sure that their giving, that their tithes and their offerings was, was funneled into the ministry of the church and enabled us to do things. And so I basically, for about a year before we moved up here, went to everybody I had ever met and said, will you give me some money? How much? I'll take the change out of the cup holder of your car. Like, I don't care. Like, just give, like, I just want to raise my own support to, 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 to 
have enough salary to be able to commit my full energy to this church plant. And I have people that would, that would cut me some pretty decent checks. But I also have people that would give me $5 a month. I had an old lady named Millie who would give me a $5 money order from Western Union every month for five years. And Miss Millie didn't drive. So she had to get somebody to pick her up and take her to the Lowe's Foods in Ramsour to get a $5 money order to mail it to my punk self for three years every month she did that. I thought that's a cool story. <laughs> so I'm standing in a little corridor at Southern Guilford Middle School and Jenny says, Matt, like, we have no money. Like it's, it's, checks aren't coming in. And back then, like we didn't have digital giving then. Like you went to the mailbox just hoping for a check. And she said, you know, that, I know you're supposed to get paid like next week and like it's not going to happen. So we're supposed to be an urban city church in Greensboro. You've called me to random it. And I'm doing it and I'm making all these decisions and I, Lord, I think I'm being obedient to you. And, and, and what I get in return is broke. Anybody ever felt like you were being obedient to God and what you got in return wasn't what you expected? Somebody. So that week, I started thinking, all right, this is probably going to be the last series we preach as a church. We're going to be a statistic. Because you do know that two out of every three church plants never make it to year three. That was just going to be us. So I, th I started thinking, all right, if I'm, it's going to be my last series, and then I'm, I'm going to have to go get a job. And like, God, I ain't, I ain't doing this ministry thing anymore. Hello, welcome to Walmart. Would you like fries with that? I'm practicing lines for my new job. Like, I don't, because I'm not going back into this ministry thing. I'm not doing it anymore, Lord. If this thing does not work out, I'm done. And that week, I just began to think, all right, if I'm going to preach this series, Lord, I'm going out with a bang. So give me something to say. But before I'm going to stand up there and preach this series, like, you got, you got to make me even believe it's worth it. Because if I'm honest, that week I thought, why, why even go to random? And why even keep this thing going? If this thing is done, God, just, just let it be done. And God began to do something in my life that week that was so necessary. Started to remind me of some things that were at the core of, of, of who we were going to need to be if we were going to keep moving forward. And God reminded me in that moment that, Matt, the mission of inspiring people to live and love like Jesus is not the mission for your church. It's the mission of your life. Like, like really, you think inspiring people to live and love like Jesus is what I wanted to give you for an organization or for the church? No, like, that's, that's, not, the, that's not the mission of, of the, them. That's the mission of you. Like, I didn't put you on this earth to be the pastor of Venice Church. I put you on this earth so that I could use your life to bring other people to me. And God taught me a really important lesson that, that week. That even if you don't feel like you have a platform, you still have a purpose. Even if you look around and you don't feel like you have a platform, you still have a purpose. And even if the platform 
seems not existent or the platform doesn't look like you thought it would look or doesn't exist where you thought it was exist, that the platform, the purpose is not dependent on the platform. The purpose is true and the purpose is eternal and the purpose is forever. So Matt, even if you have to go work at Walmart, my purpose for your life is no different than it would have been if you'd have stayed the pastor of Venice Church. And it radically changed something in me. And the goal became that once a year, we would pause and very intentionally remind ourselves that because this is what you need to know. That's not inspiring people to live in love like Jesus. Not just my purpose. It's yours as well. If you claim to know Jesus, if you claim to live in relationship with Jesus, if you have asked Jesus into your heart, if you have accepted his sacrifice on, on the cross, the Holy Spirit is now moving in your life for the purpose of using you to bring others to him. So if you're in here tonight and you've been wondering, like, what's my purpose? Why am I put on this planet? You were created for God's pleasure and God's glory. And God wants to use your life to point other people to him. The purpose of your life is to inspire people to live and love like Jesus. And the reason why this church is still here 10 years later It's not because of my leadership or my preaching. It's not because of this band, even though, oh my goodness. It, yeah. It's not because all this looks incredibly cool, but man, I'm glad it does. The reason why this church is still here 10 years later is because people have bought into that reality that they were created to inspire people to live in love like Jesus. And they've realized that their platform may look different than the one that I have been given, but it doesn't change their purpose. You and I have the same purpose. We just do it from different platforms. You and I have the same purpose. We just do it from different platforms. You exist to inspire people to live and love like Jesus. That is why until the day you take your last breath, that's what God wants to use you to do. Are we clear? We get it? Like that's what God wants to use you to do. He wants to use you to inspire your kids to live in love like Jesus, to inspire your coworkers to live in love like Jesus, to inspire your neighbors to live in love like Jesus. Like that's what God wants to do through your life. And you may wear a different uniform or have a different degree or whatever. Your platform may be different, but your purpose is the same. And then we have to wrestle with the question, okay, how? How do I inspire people to live in love like Jesus? I'm, I'm going to give it to you in one sentence. Best way, you ready? The best way to inspire people to live and love like Jesus is to live and love like Jesus. The best way to inspire people to live and love like Jesus is to actually authentically and consistently live and love like Jesus. Don't you know that's how the church in the book of Acts, that's how this thing kept going. 
That's how this thing grew and got built, is people authentically and consistently lived and loved like Jesus. And there's nothing more attractive and at times offensive than someone who lives and loves like Jesus. That how we will change the world is when you and I make a decision that we are going to live and love like Jesus. That's not easy though, is it? Man, that's really simple. Man, that's really difficult. That means that you and I are going to have to take a good hard look at ourselves. And we're going to have to consistently lay our lives next to the life of Jesus and be honest about the gap. We're going to have to lay our lives against the life of Jesus and say, All right, how, how does my life really look compared to his? If the best way, if, if my purpose is to inspire people to live in love like Jesus, and the best way to inspire people to live in love like Jesus is to live in love like Jesus, then am I really living and loving like Jesus? And how do I know? And here's the thing. Like, we, I'm concerned with what we're turning Jesus into in our culture from time to time. That you cannot discover the real Jesus in culture. The real Jesus is only found in scripture. That God saw fit to give us an account of the way that he lived and the way that he loved in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And that if we're going to get an idea of whether or not our lives measure, measure up to his, we got to go to the proper source to see him. Because he is your target. Like you're not called for your life to look like anybody else's. I know Grandma Betty was a good woman. She was godly, and she, she read King James and drank black coffee at four in the morning. But Grandma Betty ain't your target. I know you had a pastor that you admired, that invested in you, that modeled really good things, but that pastor, I am not your target. Thank the Lord. Moses Hero of scripture. Moses is not your target. Jesus is your target. And so every day you have to just say, all right, God, today, through the power of your spirit, help my life to look more like his than it did yesterday. Tomorrow, God, through the power of the Holy Spirit working in me, help my life look more and more like his life. And see, what you got to know is like, man, if, you, if you, you're trying to push back with him, it's like, man, I don't know about this thing. Like, Jesus, perfect son of God, all this kind of, Remember what John, one of the first ones to give this a shot, said in 1 John chapter 2, verses 5 and 6, but if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know we're in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. That we are called to continue to allow the Holy Spirit working in us to make our lives look like his more and more and more every day. But this thought hit me as I was preparing for this version of live love. That to mirror the way he loved, we must model the way he lived. That to mirror the way he loved, we must model the way he lived. See, we, we get really fixated on the way he loved part. 
I want to love like Jesus. Be kind and nice. And you were smart. And you... Anybody get that reference? Nobody? But if you're going to see the way that he loved is so connected to the way that he lived. That the way that he lived, the living equipped and empowered the loving. That he was able to love with such intensity because he lived in such intimacy. He was able to love intensely other people because he lived in such intimacy with the Father. You follow me? That it was, it was the intimacy with which he lived with the Father that empowered him and equipped him to love with such intensity other people. And maybe the disconnect between our ability to love people is found in our unwillingness to live the way that he lived. And see, intimacy is the word I use a lot. And you hear me throw that word around a lot at our church because I can't think of a better word. This intimacy means this, this level of closeness and transparency and like, like, like intimacy with God. Right? There's no secrets and it's, you just bear it all and it's close and it's tight-knit and it's consistent. And it was, it was his willingness to live in such intimacy with the Father that prepared him to love with such intensity other people. And so I just started digging in like we, to, to the way that Jesus lived and trying to just kind of focus on, all right, oh, well, okay, how did, how did he live? Like, what did he do? All that kind of stuff. And, and like, you can get really weird when you go, well, Jesus never lived in a house, so you're supposed to be homeless. Yeah, Jesus never drove a car either, or, or for all we know, didn't brush his teeth. But what's your point? But there are some things about the way Jesus lived that I've been learning and God's been teaching me that have been wrecking me. And if it's going to wreck me, it's going to have to wreck y'all too, okay? Because when we really start staring at the way Jesus lived, we want to love the way Jesus loved, but I, I don't know that we're so willing to live the way that he lived. Look at Luke chapter 3, verse 23. In this deep dive trying to understand better and deeper how he lived, I started reading in the Gospels again. I started reading especially in Luke, and I couldn't get past chapter 4 before God started just slapping me upside my head. Because look what it said, Luke chapter 3, verse 23. It says, now Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. Have you ever noticed how little we know about Jesus for 30 years, that basically three decades of Jesus' life are hidden. Yeah, we have the, the, the story of his birth and how that came about and the baby in the manger and all that stuff. And then we have this story when he's in some adolescent stage where he's teaching in the temple and Mary and Joseph forget about him for like a day. It makes you feel like a really good parent when you read that verse, doesn't it? But for basically... 30 years, nothing. As if for 30 years, Jesus did nothing significant to warrant a headline. For 30 years, Jesus did nothing to make anyone really take note of who he was and what he came to do. For 30 years, there's not a single act that's tweetable. Not a single thing worthy of an Instagram story. For 30 years, 
Jesus lived hidden in obscurity. And I just think, like, how many of us are willing to be that patient? And I always wonder, like, when did Jesus, like, fully know what he was here to do? Anybody else ever, like, like when, did, when did he know? Like, when, when did he know that, like, did he know from the onset he came to die? Did he know? I mean, I know that, that Mary sat down and anytime they got together, oh, let me tell you how you came into the world, Jesus. I see one day an angel came. His name was Gabriel, and he said, but did he, did he, did he understand in fullness of all of that? And, and if he did, can you, I just can't imagine, like, was there a moment like, all right, is now the time? I'm 16, God. At 16, you know, you know everything. So is it time? I'm 18. You ready to do this? I'm 25. Is it time? And it would be 30 years of hidden moments. Please think about this, that Jesus had 30 years of private moments and three years of public ministry. I just think there's something that we need to learn from that. That Jesus had 30 years of private moments for three years of public ministry. And now you do realize that, that everything that God does is significant. Every detail of the story, every part. And like, and like you realize like God doesn't do anything because God has to do that. Like, I don't think Jesus spent 30 years in there because, because Jesus had to have 30 years. He was Jesus. It's just like, you know, on the seventh day, God rested. God didn't rest because he was tired. He rested because he was modeling a behavior that he knew we would need. And is there something in the same vein that's happening right here? That in those hidden years, God is forming something in him and in us that is necessary for the ones when we go public. That, that, that the private moments are preparing us for the future platform. And that if we don't embrace the private moments and, and, and avoid the tendency to rush through them and instead rest in them and let God use those private moments as purposeful preparation so that we're ready to leverage the platform when we're giving it. Am I making sense to anybody in the room? Come on. You clap, but you don't want to live like that. Because God put something in your heart, and you know when you want to do it? An hour later. God put planting a church in my heart. If I'm honest, when I was 16, I'd have made a great church planner at 16. That's when I preached my first sermon, 16 years old, seven minutes long. Worst sermon in the history of preaching. And see, there's some people in the room, God's putting something in your heart. And now he's put you in obscurity. And you're tired of private moments. You're ready for public ministry. And you're trying to rush through it when God's saying, you need to rest in it. Because it's in the private moments that preparation and power are built so that you can handle the public ministry and the platform that comes with it in a, in a way that really brings him honor and glory.
And I know that the hidden years are difficult, but can I just remind you of something? Just because it's not being applauded by others does not mean it's going unnoticed by God. Just because it's unseen doesn't mean it's unimportant. That you need to embrace the season that you're in and do the one thing that is not natural for any of us. Be patient. And I think it's in that moment that that God builds in Jesus what he needs for what's about to happen next. Because if you keep reading in Luke, what unfolds next makes no sense. So for 30 years, God says, nope, 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 nope. And now he's 30 years old, and the guy's like, okay, it's time. And Jesus is like, all right, what are we doing first? We, we, we healing people. We turning water into wine. That's some of y'all's favorite miracle for really weird reasons. You need to repent. Uh, and we're we going to raise somebody from the dead? Like, what are we going to do? Like, what's going to be the first thing I do? And you know what the father says? Go get baptized by your weird, creepy cousin, John. You know, the one that eats bugs and looks a little funny and smells a little weird? Really? You hide me away for 30 years, and the first public act I'm going to do is get baptized by him? That's where, if it's us, we're playing that, do you know who I am card. And Jesus was the only one that ever walked the earth that could play that card. But he does it. And even John thinks it's weird because he was like, no, I should be baptizing you. <laughs> it, should be, it, it should be you baptizing me, not me baptizing you. I'm not even fit to, like, to hold your shoes, man. And Jesus gets baptized and he comes out of the water and then the Holy Spirit comes in the form of a dove and this voice rings out and says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And Jesus, if it's, if it's us, we're thinking, all right, here we go. This is when the good stuff's about to happen. We're going to do some cool stuff before I go do the, the things I really came to do. We go, and then, you know what Jesus, God says, all right, next up, go to the woods for 40 days. Wilderness. And don't eat anything. And oh, by the way, while you're hungry and starving and physically depleted, the enemy, the devil, is going to be all over you in that entire season. Like, that's the reward I get? For 30 years of patience and then letting John baptize me, hearing that you are proud and approve of me, my next step is hungry in the wilderness and, you know, I, I don't think, if I'm honest, I don't think that we even fully understand what that experience was like for Jesus. I know we have these examples that Jesus must have shared where he talked about, like, here's, here's what I went through. Because he he'd obviously shared that experience with somebody. But I believe that it, it was so much more than just those things. I think that every day in that wilderness, every minute of it, the enemy was after him and after him. You know why I believe that? Because that's how the enemy comes at me. And Jesus endures that. And he comes out of the wilderness. And if it was me, I'd be thinking, okay. Now we go. Now the good stuff. And he goes back to his hometown. And he gets a scroll of the, the book, Old Testament prophet Isaiah. And he 
preaches eloquently and he, and he expounds on it eloquently. And people are just like, wow, that's impressive. And then somebody says, man, that's Joseph's son. And the Bible says that they just completely reject him. <laughs> Not off to a good start, are we, Jesus? That for 30 years you wait patiently in obscurity, allowing God to do what he needs to do. Then all of a sudden you step on the scene and you go through all these things. And for most of us, we'd have been done. But can I say to you, as you pursue your purpose, you're going to face some very similar things that Jesus just did. And if you haven't leveraged the private moments the way God intends them to be, one of those will take you out. One of those will derail you from your purpose. Because see, what Jesus went through, can I be honest, I've gone through. Let me just kind of remind you and kind of put it in the terms of what God gave, gave me. It says, if, if you're going to pursue your purpose of inspiring people to live and love like Jesus, one of the things that's bound to happen is you're going to be asked to, to do an act of obedience that seems beneath you. You're going to be called to do an act of an obedience that seems beneath you. Doesn't it seem kind of beneath Jesus to be baptized by John? You know why he let John baptize him? Because the father told him to. I said, we ain't going to Randleman. That's not where I'm supposed to be. It says, when all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. See, we, we can get to this place where we get so committed to our plan that we refuse to do it God's way. And let me tell you something I've learned. God's way is always better than your plan. Be careful not to allow your plan cause you to miss God's way. The best thing that can ever happen in your life is to allow your dream and God's vision come to an alignment. When his vision becomes your dream, you will do something significant with your life. Another thing that he had to endure that we have to endure is a season in the wilderness that frustrates you. A season in the wilderness that frustrates you. It says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. Like you're going to have to endure a season in the wilderness that frustrates you. And you know what I think often happens? Is we take what the enemy has to offer because we're frustrated by what God has allowed. We take what the enemy has to offer because we're frustrated by what God has allowed. We don't take what the enemy has to offer because we believe it's better. We don't take what the enemy has to offer even because we don't believe it's it's, it's destructive. We take what the enemy has to offer because we're frustrated by what God has allowed. And we get mad at God that it's not working out like I thought it would, that I don't have what I thought I would have, that things aren't going like I thought they would go. 
and we're so frustrated with God, the enemy comes in and leverages that frustration. And in those moments comes in. And see, it's often because we misunderstand the wilderness. Church, the wilderness, the wilderness is not punishment. It's preparation. The wilderness is not punishment. It's preparation. And if you keep seeing it as punishment, you're going to continue to grow frustrated. And in frustration for what God has allowed, you're going to give in to what the enemy has to offer. And then he had to endure what we have to endure so often, a lack of support that discourages you. There's nothing more discouraging than than going to the people that you thought would support you the most and they believe in you the least. I don't care what time it is. Um, When God called me to plant vintage, the first three people that I called I told you last week, be careful when God gives you a dream who you share it with. The first three people I called told me I couldn't do it, shouldn't do it, and would never do it. I don't know if I've ever told many people this. First person I called said, haven't you only been a youth pastor your whole life? How are you ever going to go be a lead pastor at a church? And you know what I discovered? When God gave me the dream I thought the best thing for me to do was to call people who could make it, who could help me make it happen. When God gives you a dream, the first people you call don't need to be the people who can help you make it happen. They need to be people who believe you can make it happen. Avoid the temptation to call the people who can help you make it happen and find the people who will believe in you that it can happen. And Jesus goes into his hometown. Look what it says. It says he went into Nazareth where he had been brought up and all on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue as was his custom. He stood up to read and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. So it wasn't like what Jesus said wasn't powerful or wasn't eloquent or wasn't anointed. But what was their response? Isn't this Joseph's son? See, there's gonna come a time in your life when God does something significant in you and changes you and you go out and you leverage the platform that he gives you and there's gonna be somebody in that room from your past. Says, wait a minute. Didn't you used to date my cousin? I know you. I remember you. Didn't we go to high school together? And they're going to let their idea of who you were make them unable to see who you are. And if you're not careful, you'll give up. How was Jesus able to Commit an act of obedience that seemed beneath him? How was he able to endure the wilderness even though it had to frustrate him? How was he able to even overcome a lack of support that discouraged him? All those public encounters were overcome because of the private preparation. Because see, if you notice in the scripture, Jesus never abandoned the private even when he was given the public. Note how often it says Jesus early in the morning withdrew by himself to a solitary place. 
See, when you're given the public platform, if you negate the private moments, you will not have the character to keep you where your talent has brought you. It's in the private moments that you're built into the person of purpose and you become someone who can live and love like Jesus and inspire others to do the same. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Father, I pray in this moment that you would just work in this room. That yeah, it's late, it's Monday, and we got a long week ahead of us. But God, there's some work that you want to do in this room. You want to take what this group of people has heard and you want to solidify some things. There's some people in this room that have, have allowed one of these things to derail them from their purpose because it just felt natural. There are some in this room that are, that are trying to rush through a season of obscurity because they can't see it for what it is and they need to allow patience to build in them. Father, I pray that whatever you need to do in our lives right now, that you would help us to have the courage to let you do it. Speak, Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to the Vintage Church Podcast. Stay connected with what's happening at Vintage by downloading the Vintage Church app where you have access to sermon notes, upcoming events, devotionals, previous podcasts, and discover ways to connect in community. You'll also have access to our deeper podcast, which is a conversational deep dive into the message from the weekend. We hope you join us again soon.